We continue our very painstaking study through the book of Revelation, which is really the framework in which to understand the prophetic scriptures regarding the end of the age. And as we have been progressing through uh, the book of Revelation, we've come to chapter 6 and uh, the opening of the fifth seal. That's chapter 6, verse 9. When the angel opened, excuse me, when he, now uh, the one who is opening the seals, might I remind you, is the Lamb. No one else in heaven and on earth or under the earth was found worthy to open, to take the scroll and to open the seals. Uh, the Lamb was worthy. The Lamb came and took the scroll, and now we have seen the opening of the seals. So it's not an angel opening a seal. Uh, such matters are not delegated to anyone else but the person of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The, the Lamb who had been slain from the foundations of the world. Now the importance of this is that the events released both in heaven and on earth are under the absolute and sovereign control of the Lamb. It's important that you remember this particularly as a believer in Christ living in these times. It's it's normal for us to think that with the cascading of events in the fashion described by Jesus Himself as birth bangs on a pregnant woman, it is tempting to think that uh, these events will just run out of control and no one will in fact be in control, there will be a cascading of events um, that are not subject to any control, they are random and the like. No, not so at all. Even though in this section of the book of Revelation we are observing permissions being given to, for example, the four horsemen, and they go out and they they wreak certain havoc, as we have talked about uh, under the section of the four horsemen. Um, They wreak great havoc upon the earth. But we're reminded of the fact that the order of their sequencing and the announcement as to what they can do and even the recognition that the power by which they were permitted to do these things remained firmly in the sovereign control of the Lamb. They're released when the Lamb opens the seals. So the Lamb opens the fifth seal. And here the scene changes. In the first four seals broken and opened, we saw the release on the earth of, in the sequence of their release, 
of the four horsemen. Now the scene switches and it's about a focus that in my understanding covers both the heavens and the earth, but primarily covers people who are in both heaven and earth, but primarily those who are in heaven. So let me get to it as as we begin. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, John said, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So again, matters that concern people both in heaven and on earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now that's what happened when the fifth seal was opened. You'll note in verse 12 following, I looked when he opened the sixth seal. Now we're not going to the sixth seal yet, we're going to dwell for a while on the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they were crying with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Now, it seems that from the frenzy of activity that had been launched by the departure of the four horsemen and the great tragedies upon the earth that were then unfolding, the scene switches to those under the altar that was in heaven. Now, as you look closely at these words, and I've considered each word in the process, the soul, the word soul here, is the word suke, and it has multiple meanings. So it's not the bodies of people, it's the souls. Where would the bodies be? The bodies are dead and remain buried, waiting upon the resurrection, which will happen, first resurrection, will happen at the time of the return of the Lord. Now, uh, for a moment let me talk about that because many people wonder how you, what happens to you when you die? 
Well, the human being has three components of being. And each one of these components of being has a life that is distinct and different from the other components of being and from the lives within those components of being. And what happens to each of these three components is largely determined by the life that is within them and the way that they lived while they were on the earth. So the three components of being are the SAR, S-A-R-X, which is the body, and it has a component of being that is, uh, that is the component of being, has a life within it that is defined as bios, B-I-O-S, bios. Now, that is the life within the body. It's the capability of the body in terms of its systems to function in the earth. Death occurs when that life cannot and is not sustained anymore within the body. The body then is buried. The dust, according to Ecclesiastes 12, 7, that body was taken from the dust of the earth and it returns to the dust from whence it came. The soul has a life in it that is not of this world, but its purpose is to interpret the events and circumstances that are taken in through the body, through the five senses. And you've heard me speak about these things before. Now, that soul, when the person dies, goes in one of two directions. It depends on how the person lived. If the person lived in reliance on God, was added to the body of Christ, that soul returns to heaven or goes to heaven when the person dies. If the person lives in opposition to God, then that soul goes to hell, to Hades. Not Tartarus, that's the place where evil spirits are contained until until the day of the final judgment when they're destroyed, the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial period. But then the third component of being is called pneuma, and the life within the pneuma is called zoe. Now zoe is a life that is not connected to nor maintained by any force or power on the earth. It is literally the life that is within the person of God Himself and fuels the functioning of the human spirit. When a person is saved, the soul and the spirit return to God and come back at the point of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ.
That is because the soul has been brought back under the rule of the Spirit and the person lives in the bios as one representational of eternal life and one whose life then has a purpose intricately tied up with the representation of the living God, how He chooses to rule in creation through such a being and that is actually the definition of salvation. I know salvation has been typically defined by evangelical or even generally speaking Christian religion as going to heaven when you die and salvation is decided to be being saved out of going to hell. Well, there's a lot more to salvation than that. Those are certainly elements of it, but salvation is to be saved out of the rule of one kingdom and placed into and under the rule of another king and into another kingdom and salvation is to retrieve the soul from the control of the enemy and putting the soul back under the rule of the Spirit of God by way of bringing it back under the rule of the human spirit which is in turn ruled by the Spirit of God. So what is resurrected at the end of the age when Jesus returns is the only thing that died. The spirit does not die nor does the soul die but the body dies. The only thing that needs to be resurrected is the thing that expired. So at the end of the age then the body uh, will be resurrected but it was sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 15th chapter. Much like when Jesus was killed as uh, Jesus of Nazareth, He was raised up as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, so God raised Him up according to Peter in the book of Acts, the second chapter, His first message, upon the ascension of Christ, he said, and you with wicked hands crucified and slew the Son of God and God raised Him from the dead and made Him to be both Lord and Christ or the Mashiach, the Messiah. Now my point isn't to speak about these things although uh, I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you what happens when you die. The body is put into the ground the spirit and the soul of the righteous go back to God who gave it, Uh, the spirit of the unrighteous returns to God because it was never activated, the soul however goes to hell and awaits a time of judgment before the great white throne which is the time uh, at the conclusion of the millennium. But going back to what we see under the fifth seal, he said, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? Now the altar in heaven, that's quite interesting um, because there are actually two words for the term altar. One is the term bomos, 
which generally speaking uh, refers to a mound, a berm, uh, uh, a construction found in the temple of uh, pagan gods and uh, is used for and in the process of worshipping idols. However, this reference, this word altar, is the word thusiasteron, T-H-U-S-I-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, thusiasteron. And it typically denotes an altar for the sacrifice of victims. It's also used as an altar of incense, for the burning of incense. So that when, for example, uh, the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, was offering the evening sacrifice of incense, on the altar of incense, an angel appeared to him. Now, the purpose of the altar in heaven is to recognize the sacrifice of those whose lives were given for the purpose of Christ. But it has the dual meaning because later on in chapter 7 it will refer to the altar in heaven and and much incense being given to a certain angel and this incense, this larger quantity of incense, was described as the prayers of the saints. Now everything in heaven has a shadow in the earth. Things that are in heaven are the reality, things on the earth are the type and shadow. So in the tabernacle, uh, inside of the tent itself, the tabernacle, there was an altar of incense and it symbolized, uh, not necessarily to the Jews because the revelation of the saints had not so fully come to them, but it did symbolize the altar, uh, the, the the ascension of the prayers of the saints as opposed to uh, the place where the saints were sacrificed. So on the earth the altar of sacrifices was outside of the tabernacle. It was uh, where the priests offered the sacrifices, but in heaven their sacrifice is done and it's celebrated before God and so in that sense they're viewed as those who were under the altar because, now look, they are calling to God. They're saying, how long, O Lord? And you will note that their prayers are immediately answered. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth. So they're speaking in heaven, but the judgment will come on the earth. 
before I go on, let me, let me, uh, let me make uh, certain other observations. There were, these souls were under, they were under the altar. And there the reference to under is the, is the adverb hupokato, H-U-P-O-K-A-T-O, pronounced hupokato. And it's used under. It's, it's speaking of being underneath. And that may well refer to not so much a position, but those who benefit from having their prayers heard. So in that sense, we on the earth now, who are the sons of God, are under this altar as well, because our prayers ascend from the altar to God, and He hears us just as He hears those who are in heaven. So the idea is not so much a crowd of people under an altar, but rather those who, in the way that they lived and died, left no doubt as to their devotion to God. And because they lived that way and they died that way, their prayers continue, or whatever they say to God continue to be of great significance to God. And they were asking, how long will you, will it be until you judge, until you judge the earth for the blood that they shed? So in that sense, in that sense, although they were not laid upon an altar and killed, like Jesus, whose altar actually was the cross, your daily sacrifices, when people revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely, on account of the name of the Lord, those are daily sacrifices. These sacrifices are spoken collectively in the following terms, that they overcame Satan, they overcame the schemes of the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and that they did not choose to preserve their lives even unto death. Exactly the same thing said here about those who are under the altar and it says the following, uh, how long will you Uh, let me back up, I saw the souls under the altar who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they held. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and that they would not, uh, they would not recant, they would not say to save their lives. So, Uh, the testimony which they held and the Word of God access the blood of Christ. In a sense, they died with Christ and they were raised with Christ. 
So under the altar then, or covered by the provision of grace that operates even now for us who believe on the earth, who live a life that honors the Lord in all the particulars of how we live, who choose to prefer the ways of God over our own ways or the ways of the world. This is the concept of martyrdom. It is not necessarily that they were, they were killed um, by, have, by being beheaded, for example, because there's no greater benefit to someone who's suddenly killed for the Word of God and one who lived a protracted life of daily faithfulness. That is as much of a sacrifice and it's characterized by reference to the altar of sacrifice as avenging our blood. But that's true whether or not we're we're literally speaking of the shedding of blood or that we did not pursue the life that we otherwise might have because we chose instead to honor the Lord every day in our substance. God hears us because our prayers, the prayers of the righteous, come up before God as as, uh, even Cornelius was told in Acts 10. When the angel visited him, he said, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. So in this sense, those covered by that arrangement with access to and permission uh, to speak to God in this way, when they spoke, God heard them and answered them and answered them immediately. Now notice that they were told that they'd have to wait for the reply, but the reply came immediately. The delivering of the results for which they prayed, how long until you avenge, so they were speaking of, and the word avenge there is not this word filled with hubris, it's more the term, how long will before you vindicate us before all the earth? And uh, they were told that their vindication would come when the full complement of those who were to be brought in, of both their fellow servants and their brethren, and I'll, I'll deconstruct those terms later on, had been uh, brought in. Next I want to talk about the fact that a white robe was given to each of them and they were told that they must rest for a little while longer. Now, in summary then, they were under the altar, meaning they were covered when the, when the fifth seal was opened, they were covered by the provision of being the sons of God and their prayers ascended to God, they were heard on high, they were heard before the living God Himself. This is, represents a change going forward. I'll continue this discussion after we talk about 
the robes that were given to them. God bless you.